The question that I usually ask and is my my favorite because there's really no way to prepare for it. Uh, so you, you you can't read a book on it. <laughs> is um, name three products that you use today, and then I, as the interviewer, will choose one of them, and you're going to be a competitor to this company, and you're going to build a better version of it, and and go for it. How how are we going to launch it? What are we going to build? And I love that question because you. You can't prep for it. You can't think of what what you're going to choose because I'm going to ultimately choose it out of that. And I get to see really how how you think and and how you how you really like hone in on that and that space. Understand like the the problems that people are having in that space. How you can build something that is even better uh, than what exists today. And really see how creative you are and how how you can think on your feet. Hey everyone, and welcome to another episode of the podcast. In today's episode, my conversation is with Liam Bowling. Liam is a senior product manager at Google, based in the New York City office, where he is actively working on Google Maps with various teams all around the world, developing and designing new features for millions of people. Liam also hosts a YouTube channel where he teaches people on the fundamentals of product management and aims to educate others to learn about being great product managers. In this episode, expect to learn how product management is defined, what product managers actually do, why product managers actually at Google are different, what to expect out of a product manager interview and how to ace it, how AI is playing a key role for the future of product management, what a day-to-day looks like for a product manager, and much more. If you like what you hear, go ahead and subscribe to the podcast on all platforms. It helps bring more content like this to your ears and helps us engage in insightful conversations so you can keep learning and being better every day. So with that, I hope you enjoy this insightful conversation with Liam Bowling. So let's talk about product management for a little bit. I think this is going to be sort of an inaugural series of really cool episodes that I want to do about operators not just from product management but also from like marketing and go to market and everything so i think product management is a good start and to really tell people a little bit about what happens behind the scenes in tech companies and obviously you know you work with google and microsoft in the past i think it's really going to be exciting for people to learn about what product management is all about and we can start from basics as well just to get people acquainted with the notion of product management, because I feel like people understand and they know of what PM is, and I'm a product manager here and a product, ma- product manager there, but they don't really understand what it is at its core. So maybe do you want to explain what product management is all about? Maybe define it, you know, explain a little bit about what it is and what's the objective of product management, and we can sort of go from there. Yeah. Oh man, what a what a what a tough question of what it, what is product management all about? Um, I I think it it starts by kind of first determining like like you alluded to like different companies have different definitions of it, right? Um, when I was at Microsoft, a product manager was working on uh, quite a few different things than what a Google product manager is working on. Uh, but in general, I'll kind of talk in the the terms of uh, what what Google's landed on and and kind of I think what people think of product management when they when they say that word. Uh, it, it's tough to describe in one sentence, so I'll kind of put it in terms of uh, product. Really, is you are the you're the owner of getting this thing across the line, right? You're you're the owner of of shipping, launching, and landing this thing. So that means if something goes wrong or something is is not going towards that goal, you have to figure out how to get it back on track. Um, that could be anything from putting your lawyer hat on and trying to figure out a, a legal challenge. Um, it could be putting on your software engineering hat and trying to understand, okay, how how can we fix this bug or, or keep the product moving in the right direction? Um, put your design hat on, put your marketing hat on, right? You're, you're really, whatever needs to get done, it's up to you to make sure it gets done. And maybe you bring in experts to get things done that you, you can't really do because you're more of a breadth instead of a depth uh, type role in the, in the, in the company. But it's up to you to get this thing out there and and to build something that people really love. Um, so I feel like that, there's a lot of pressure would... there as well, like to to really deliver as well, you know, because as a product manager, you're dealing with a lot of other parties, you know, the stakeholders, 
you know, you've got yeah. engineering, you've got leadership, you've got other teams, you know, marketing, uh, growth. How do you manage those relationships, uh, especially in a big company? You know, and we'll go into sort of what being a product manager in Google is like down soon, but just from a high level, the interactions that you have, you know, it does require specific, specific skill set. Can you, can you speak to that and, and sort of what requirements are, you know, necessary for to be a, a good PM? Yeah, there's, and there's different ways you can look at this in terms of us, like, like you were talking about, like a, a smaller company versus a larger company, right? I remember when I, I joined Google, it was 40,000 employees and, and I've been there for four years and now it's, a, it's over 140,000 employees. So it's really scaled up a lot and turned into a different company. Um, but I've also worked at, at startups like Tumblr, uh, a, a social network that people don't really use too much now, but was uh, an important thing. And that had 300 employees, right? So the product manager role really shifts throughout scaling up your company. Um, at Tumblr, you're much more closer to the CEO, to the founder. You're, a lot is expected out of you to do as many things as possible with a lot more authority and, and you have to understand it more, right? So there are no lawyers available. You have to kind of become a lawyer versus at Google at the scale of 140,000 employees, um, you, you really should talk to an actual lawyer. <laughs> there are plenty of lawyers uh, that are there for you um, to, to figure things out. But there's different challenges, right? So instead of pretending to be a lawyer at a smaller company, at a larger company like Google, uh, the, the phrase of marketing up and marketing down internally is is important. Um, you need to make sure that leadership understands what you're working on and, and, and convince them how important it is that you're, you're working on it versus um, at, at smaller companies, maybe you're not doing that as much. At larger companies, product management is, is really about uh, you know, like, like we talked about, it's, it's getting your product shipped and over the line, but also about keeping it alive within the company, making sure that leadership knows that, that this is an important thing, that they understand the metrics, the success metrics, and, and convincing other people throughout the company that this really matters. I think that's something that you don't have to deal with as much in a smaller company, uh, but within Google, for example, marketing up or marketing horizontally is, is something that's talked about a lot. So I think that makes sense. And as someone who's gone through product, uh, being a product manager uh, in its career, I think it definitely changes over time, especially as you're moving from an early stage company, you mentioned Tumblr in, in the old days, to something as a behemoth as, as Google, right? And it's the dynamics that also fluctuate over time and you have to, the reporting lines may be different, the products may change, they, they maybe the products interrelate and they overlap with each other. So there's a lot of ad adaptation that you have to uh, adjust to uh, and that sort of makes the job also exciting. What was your, what was your personal journey going into product management? How did you get into it? Was, did you always wanna be a product manager? Were you an engineer beforehand? There's a lot of ways to get into product management. And I know for a fact that in some universities or colleges, they don't really teach product management as a course. It's like be an engineer or, or be a marketer. You know, how did you get, how did you specifically get into product management yourself? It's a great question. I think uh, when, when I talk to other PMs uh, throughout the industry, it always seems to be a, a similar, a similar theme of did not expect this kind of just fell into it somehow. Um, didn't, didn't know that this role existed. Um, so my personal journey into it was in, in undergrad, in, in college, I was working on, on, on building things, right? So I, I keep it very, very vague like that of, I was trying to build some, some apps, I was building some websites, kind of coming from a bit of the engineering background, but more around the design background of really loving what the, the UI would look like and how it interact with people. So it's a little bit of UX, a little bit of engineering. My code is terrible. Um, I, would never, I would never code for a company. Um, and, it started with that and and found out, okay, I'm solving these problems for people and, and I have to put my marketing hat on to, to try and figure out how to get people to use this product. And, and then all of these things kind of led into, okay, I guess I'm founding companies, maybe I have to raise a little bit of capital uh, and, and kind of fell into that as well. All with the, 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 the pretext of just wanting to build things that help solve problems, right? Um, and I think that's where a lot of product managers come from is they have this urge of, I want to go help, help make something better. I want to, I want to solve a problem that either I have or other people have. So it started with that founder hat 
and then moved into like, I, I didn't know that product existed, moved into, okay, well, I guess I like building stuff. I'm going to be an engineer. I guess that's what I'm going to do. So went to intern at a Tumblr and Microsoft. And while I was at Microsoft, the recruiter, I forget who this recruiter was, but completely changed my life, just said, hey, you, you seem to talk a lot. Do you want to be a product manager? And I was like, okay, um, I don't know what that is, but maybe I'll try that for the summer as, as an intern. And just kind of fell in love with it um, that summer of, of seeing, okay, wait, this is actually exactly what I want to do. Uh, have kind of a little bit of, of breadth um, in, in everything and be responsible for getting this thing shipped. Uh, and that's that's where it all started. So I've worked at Microsoft, um, co-founded Microsoft uh, Viva, which I think I think what it's called today uh, for, for a year and a half, and then went to go work at Google where I've been working on Google Maps um, for the last four years. Yeah. I think there is some real insight there because for a lot of people, they don't necessarily know what they want to do. I think they want to be, you know, like you said, they're great communicators, perhaps they're great at listening, great at being able to distill very technical concepts into easy, understandable terms. And that's a real skill to have. And I think not a lot of engineers have that, you know, very deep in the code, very, very intellectual and smart in doing what they do best. But in terms of communicating that, that can always be difficult. And I feel like that's where product managers are great at, at really filtering the noise and then being able to communicate that effectively. And in what more, especially specifically with Google as well, you know, because they're working on so many different products with so many technology foundations, you have to be able to get across these products uh, with a fine tooth comb and be able to, to communicate that through good design, through marketing and, and all those things. So that's really exciting to, to hear about your journey. Let's double click on Google for a little bit. Can you tell me a little bit about the nuances of the PM role at Google and how does it differ from Microsoft or any other product management role at Google? Can you walk me through and walk the audience through a, a typical sort of, a, you know, I guess, process of bringing a product manager or, or maybe starting as a product manager at Google, you know, what's your first day like? How do you, you know, who do you speak to? You know, how do you get acquainted with the products? What does that sort of process look like? Yeah, the, the, the Google product manager role, I think, is is, is quite unique and, and potentially more, it's similar to, to Meta if we want to find like other companies that are, 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 are kind of coupled in that um, in terms of what the, the culture is of a PM. I'd say Microsoft and Amazon are a little bit similar, uh, but for for Google specifically, if you look at the company, every company um, has a very different culture, and and Google's famously is very uh, academic is probably the way I'd best describe it. In it's very grassroots, uh, meaning the the ideas kind of come from the bottom, from individual uh, contributors, from 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 product managers usually, and and those are kind of brought up to the top to where Sundar and, and, and leadership are like, oh, wait, that's a great idea. We should bet on that. Um, and it's quite different than other companies, right? I remember at Microsoft, it was much more Satya and his team, the, the CEO. It kind of trickled down from, from there in terms of what the priorities were. So it's a very different way of, of moving about and much more similar to like an academic institution in that uh, things are always moving fluidly. And it's really about convincing your peers that this is the right thing to do. The ultimate, uh, I think, product manager quote that people always throw around is, oh, you have to influence without authority. And I think at Google, you barely have any authority, uh, close to none. It's really about your your ability to present evidence, present uh, findings, present data, and, and convince the people around you on your team and other teams, this problem is a big one. And this could be a great thing for humanity to solve. <laughs> or, or if it's a small, you know, uh, this button should go over there, you know, wh whatever that may be. Um, that's that's kind of how it works as opposed to uh, the kind of top-down mechanism that other companies have. Do you, how do you choose the product that you want to work on? And is it assigned to you or do you have free reign on sort of, here's a bunch of products, choose one. You know, how does that process work like? Because with Google specifically, as, as we spoke about, there's so many. There's Maps, there's the, the Pixel, there's Search, there's you know, uh, Google um, 
uh, workspace and everything. So how do you how do you find the product that you want to work on? Yeah, it's the the, the positive thing is that there there are a lot of products that have have over I think I think there were around twenty or thirty products that have over five hundred. Um, monthly active users, right? And I think there's around 10 that have over 1 billion. So the, the scale and the breadth of products that Google has is, is, is a little bit too much sometimes. Um, it seems like the company is a little distracted, in my opinion, on, on many things. Um, the, the method in, in, in how you choose and, and you ultimately do choose is after you go through the general um, PM interview that everyone at Google, every product manager goes through, then you choose which team you're going to join if once and once you pass that. And that turns into the, the team match phase, which is where uh, the kind of roles of interviewing are reversed. And you have a ton of uh, product manager managers trying to win you over and say, hey, come join the Pixel team. Like we, we have the best phones and this is our plan. It's so great. Uh, or the, you know, the Google Maps team will say, oh, no, 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 look at us. Like we have we have the coolest. Everyone loves Google Maps. Everyone loves this product. And and it's, it's kind of a very interesting um, way that things uh, reverse a little bit, but that's that's how it works, and and you choose ultimately what what you want to work on. Can you walk me through a typical day for a product manager? Uh, I know this is going to be interesting because I know on YouTube and there's a lot of like channels out there who say, "Oh, this is what my day looks like as an engineer <laughs> when I work at Meta or Facebook, or whatever it may be." So, what, walk me through just what do you do? Uh, when you step into the into the office, both virtually and physically nowadays, and and sort of walk me through, you know, the work that you're involved in on a typical day to day basis. Yeah, it's going back to that theme of I'm ultimately responsible for for getting this thing out there, um, and 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 making something that people love and, and respond positively to. So the meetings. I, I, you and I were kind of joking about the the, the ability to task switch before uh, is, is is part of the tool belt of a product manager in that the typical day really there is not really a typical day. Um, you'll have a meeting in the morning um, talking about, you know, policy uh, and, and with the legal team, if this should ship to, you know, 10% of a, a billion users, uh, then you'll have another meeting with your engineering team trying to figure out why this this bug occurred, which you know potentially brought down a part of Google Maps that some people may have noticed. Um, you then have uh, another meeting with PR, um, preparing for an interview with The Verge about this product that's being released in a week, and you're you're just going through this every half hour to an hour task switch of of, of a new thing that um, you need to complete uh, or or push to get your product out the door. Um, so it's 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 really it could be anything, right? I've had meetings with the the finance org about, oh, I want to hire a few engineers on, on this team, but, you know, we have to justify the cost. It could be uh, another team um, with the, the UX of uh, a whole other product that somehow is using an, an API that your team creates and, and they want to make changes to their, to their side. So it's everything and anything at the same time. <laughs> and, and you're always, you're always switching uh, but between kind of those those roles and, and changing those hats every um, every, every half hour or so. <laughs> so how do you how do you manage sort of like the milestones and a sort of progress on working on all of these things? So for example, like you mentioned Google Maps, for example, and you want to roll out a new feature, for example, how do you measure against that feature? How do you measure, especially as a product manager, you know, do you have KPIs that you need to meet? Do you have OKRs that need to be met? Can you sort of explain to me a little bit about what, how your role impacts both the release of that feature, but then the measurement of that achievement and, you know, how it gets deployed into the public sphere, everyone getting used to it, um, and then sort of feeding that back into the PM team as well. What does that look like? Yeah, it sounds like kind of what you're asking about is like, you know, how, how do we, how do we measure success, right? Like what is the success of the product? And that, that ultimately is, is up to you, but going back to what we were saying before of that, how Google is very like an academic institution in that you, you can propose your success metrics, but you're going to have some peer validation uh, of, of deciding if that is the right success metric or not. And there's, you know, a blessing and a curse behind that. Sometimes you really believe in something, but the, you know, all of your peers are saying this is probably, you know, has some, uh, 
some some traps to it, uh, and and maybe you have to change that, right? But um, when when you launch an experiment, having a, a very strict success requirement and, and and determining if it goes above this or below this, it's it's a success or a failure before the experiment go li- goes live is, is is critical. And with within Google, we have these very strong uh, reviews right before any experiment goes out, where you have. A, a lot of people in the room of, of different backgrounds and different roles within the company from legal policy, UX, uh, engineering product, and they're approving or, or not approving every single feature that, that is released. And these, these meetings are fascinating, right? You, you, you'll, you'll, you'll propose something and someone will say something that you're like, I, I had no clue that this would affect this group of people that I didn't even know existed. Right. And it's, uh, it's it, it's really interesting to be a fly on the wall in those meetings, but so it goes through this rigor rigorous um, process to then determine okay if this thing will be launched and then included in that success criteria. So that's that's kind of how that goes within Google, um, determining if it's successful or not. You know you want to get statistical significance. Uh, you you want to understand like is is this is this shippable? Uh, well, actually let me let me. Take that one back quickly. Um, I, m- I might actually end. I, I think I'm going to end the question or the the answer before that. So <laughs> I think that's probably good. Yeah. So, and I I totally get that. You know, there is definitely a lot of moving parts. You don't realize, especially at a large company or there's a company that with with large uh, a suite of products, where there's going to be overlap and if one is going to have conflict with another or not. And so yeah. it's it's interesting. Yeah. You you have to have these important conversations and discussions with different functional groups to see exactly what the ramifications will be down the road. And it's really, you mentioned fascinating, and I totally agree with that uh, notion of being able to know, like discover stuff that you wouldn't otherwise, if you were siloed off in your own um, product management team on your own feature, and then you have these trickle down effects on what it could look like um, for other team members. So that's a that's an interesting thing. Uh, what's the what's the most interesting sort of meeting you've been in uh, for a particular product feature that you can remember well? Let's see. That's a great question. Um, th- this was. I think when when I eventually leave Google, this will probably be one of my more uh, more proud uh, moments of, of building something that I think impacted uh, most of humanity, which is kind of a, a wild thing to build. In the beginning of COVID, and and throughout probably the first year, it was it was tough to rely on on data from from any mapping platform, right? So when you look at Apple Maps or Google Maps or, or Yelp, uh, decision on if you can go to a place and if it'll be open when you arrive was a very hit or miss. Uh, there are some industry numbers out there showing that most mapping products, I will not spe- specify who, um, but th- the accuracy is probably something around like 40, 40% accurate, which is a terrible standard. Um, and then 40% even in the United States, for example, right, is uh, pretty bad. So what I mean by 40% accuracy, it's a 40% chance that if you go to this restaurant, it will be open, <laughs> which is a terrible chance. You're not going to go to restaurants after that. Um, you show up and it's closed. The one thing that I, I spearheaded within within Google and built the, the, the strategy behind and, and um, executed on this was fixing that problem um, and, and, and fixing how how we understand if a place is open or closed and it sounds so trivial, right? Like, of of course, like wouldn't a business just tell Google? It's like, no, actually most businesses don't tell Google. Um, Couldn't users tell us? It's like, well, how do we trust the user? How how do we know if that's the right answer? Uh, What if neither of those sources work? How else can we figure this out? It's it's kind of a fun question I like asking people is like, how, how would you keep 300 million businesses hours details up to date when that is the most fundamental part of a decision that people make if they're going to go to a restaurant or not. <laughs> um, and, and that was, uh, one, that review was, was, was really fascinating. Um, uh, going 
to to this uh, group of people with uh, my proposal and strategy of how I'm going to solve this and how I'm going to get it up to uh, around 95% accuracy for the world. And that's a pretty shocking number to say, oh, you're going to go from 40, 40, 45% accuracy up to something like 90, 95% accuracy. We'll, we'll see how that goes. Um, a lot of really interesting uh, questions are brought up and executed on the strategy. And, and we ultimately um, did get up to, to 95% accuracy. So it's, it's, it's kind of crazy to, to see that change. That was one meeting. I've been in meetings where we've been reviewing things that impact certain groups of people. Um, the Google Maps launched a feature uh, for black identified um, businesses and then LGBTQ plus identified businesses. And there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of ramifications about launching a product like that, right? We want to give those groups of people the ability to really express themselves and to, to show people that I'm, I'm part of this group. Um, and, and I'm, I'm building this incredible, you know, small business, but there's, there's real world consequences too, to, to putting that label on a business, right? Like, um, we saw during, during COVID and, and before and after that as well, that uh, there are, there are people that target those groups and we're in a, in a meeting discussing, are, are we essentially going to let people see what type of group that business identifies as? And there's, you know, I, I won't say specifics, but those are really tough conversations um, of, of the potentials that could happen to, to people in those groups. So um, yeah, that was, uh, that, that was a fascinating and, and really in-depth conversation. No, thanks for that. And it's really interesting to hear about sort of when, when these types of conversations are to be had, just about how honest you have to be as well. And sometimes you get into very uncomfortable situations because people don't think about this stuff. And it really comes through when you have to really implement this and say, oh, hang on, well, there's an edge case there. What about, you know, this and that? And what if this happens? And so this will hopefully, and I'm, I'm, I'm and I've seen the future. It, it's interesting to see, you know, how you guys implement that as well. You know, I'm, I'm sure there was a lot of conversations about what this could look like and a lot of correspondence with these groups as well to say, you know, what is the best way to approach this particular problem and Absolutely. give you the visibility that you need as well. So I, I, I mean, those are really good answers. And just going back to the one about the, knowing during sort of COVID if they're open, how did you figure out if they were open or not? Yeah, it was, uh, um, the, the, the best way to kind of describe that one is it's, there's not one answer to that. There's not one answer to determine if a place is open or closed, even just calling the business, you have a certain hit rate of them not picking up and you'll have no clue what happened. So, Google's very good at artificial intelligence and machine learning, uh, as, as, as we've seen there, you know, it seems like it's kind of neck and neck between, uh, uh what Google's doing and then what, uh, open AI is doing with Microsoft and Google's been doing this for a while. So my proposal coming from a, a bit of ML in the background is to, to have around, I think, I think I proposed in the beginning around 40, 45 signals feeding into an ML. Uh, algorithm, which then would spit out a, a, a likelihood of what the hours of operation of this business are um, based on a, a ton of factors. So this is everything from like what nearby businesses hours are, when the business is last updated, uh, when what source updated that business last. We invented a, a technology during COVID. We actually, it's called duplex, which can have full conversations over the phone with people and ask them questions. Um, originally it was used for, uh, reservations of tables, but turns out we could repurpose it and ask businesses, what, what are your hours today? And that can scale to millions of calls in, in hours. Um, other sources from someone uploading a photo and then extracting from that photo, the business hours on the menu, it's, it's every single little thing possible and feeding this all into this incredible, out, um, machine learning model, which then comes back with a, uh, you know, 
an accurate guess of what we think the hours are. And that's that's the, the hypothesis of it, right? And if we come back with that accurate guess, then we show certainty with it because we'll have a confidence score associated with that guess. And if the confidence is low, we'll, we'll tell people. And this is a, a, a huge shift and how Google thinks about the, the data that we have is instead of just projecting like, this is what the answer is, on a, a, some percentage of the businesses will actually say, this is what we think it is, but we might be wrong. We don't know exactly for, for various reasons. And this creates this incredible loop, right? Of you have signals that feed into a decision maker, the decision comes out and if the decision isn't confident, we'll try to request more signals from people to then eventually just feed the loop until we get something that we feel really good about. And that will be the hours of operation for the business. And it, it's a completely different paradigm of thinking about data and data quality. Um, but Google is the most, I can say with, with extreme confidence that Google is the most accurate way to determine if a, a business is open or closed or what the hours of operation are based on that loop that I just described. I feel like with, with what you just described, it's really fascinating to hear that, you know, this is, and this comes across, across different, the way in solving problems, right? Because you don't know what the result is. You have to hypothesize and having some sort of outcome in your mind, whether it's right or wrong, that's irrelevant, but you have to have some sort of criteria to say, look, this is what we believe is going to happen because of these factors. And that's, it's your job to prove them or disprove them. And so it sounds like for, for you guys and especially with where you're, whether you're a management consultant or you're in product management, there is definitely a lot of overlap when it comes to creating great products is that you have to create a hypothesis at the end of the day and then you create a decision tree okay how is this going to work you know and asking the right questions along the way and then hopefully towards that you can gain enough confidence to be able to to execute on that and then prove that hypothesis um wrong or you know, correct or in incorrectly i think this will tie into sort of maybe the pm interview process which i'm really intrigued about and every company is different. I think there'll be some common denominators in there. There'll be differences. Maybe, maybe like Google, for example, they'll ask specific things. Can you sort of speak to what a typical pro, uh, product management interview is like? You know, how should people come prepared for that? What should they expect? And how do they be? How do they present the best? Oh, that was Siri. <laughs> of course, there we go. <laughs> I'll cut that out, by the way. And uh, finally, what was and how do they best succeed in in you know putting their best foot forward to sort of become a great product manager? Yeah, so I'll, I'll give a quick background about what what I've done at Google in terms of uh, interviewing, then go into what the process is at Google, um, and then yeah, we can we can jump into like what what are kind of the, the patterns of people that I've seen that have successfully traversed through the uh, the maze, which is the, the interview process. So I've, I've interviewed, uh, I think I'm coming up to like 75 candidates uh, throughout my, my time at Google, um, all product managers that are from, from the whole, the whole board, from senior to, to junior to entry level. Um, and uh, I will say that the success rate is not great <laughs> there. <laughs> it is a, uh, um, I think there are some percentages publicly that uh, even even going through the interview process, um, I think it's a, what do people usually say? I think it was like a 10, 10% or 5% rate uh, of, of success going through the process. Um, I only add that in there not to sow doubt in your mind that you, you will make it through, but to just have reasonable expectations that this is, it's just a challenging process and, and you should never give up on your dreams of being a product manager because you can just apply again in six months. So it's kind of like the lottery. If you just eventually buy all the tickets, you will probably win, right? So just keep applying and keep interviewing and eventually you'll get there. Um, so let's, let's talk about the, the process itself, right? And it's, uh, it's around two, it's one interview with a recruiter for half an hour, just kind of getting the, the high level, like, is, is this the right fit? Uh, then one to two phone screening screening is a, a light way of saying it, but one to two interviews over the phone, uh, that'll be kind of touching five of the uh, pillars that Google evaluates on a very like light touch kind of uh, breadth approach. And then you'll have, I think it's roughly around five onsites and each one will contain um, one or more of the, of the pillars that uh, we're evaluating for. Um, those pillars, <laughs> I, I, hopefully I have memorized them. Um, you've got technical, 
you've got um, kind of just general business strategy, product, uh, what, what do we call it now? You can think of it as like product sense, um, you have analytical, and then you have the, uh, which specifically we say it is Googliness. Um, some people say that's more of the behavioral and or cultural fit. Um, but at Google, we, we don't say it's a culture fit because culture fit kind of has some weird connotations behind it of um, it's not really culture that we're looking for. It's um, kind of a, a much more like emotional um, and intelligence side of, of, of the candidate. So that's the interview process. What happens behind the scenes afterwards is we get a big packet of all the notes that all of the people who have interviewed you uh, put that all together and that goes to a committee. Um, the committee is usually much senior PMs uh, and they, they decide based on the evidence that they've seen and the decisions of all of those product managers um, if that candidate should receive an offer or not. So that's, that's the process. Uh, the patterns that I've seen that are successful of people who go through that process, um, usually to get to the beginning of it, to, to get that initial phone call or that phone screening, I've seen three, three types of folks go to that. So sometimes um, people who have, have founded something in the past, uh, that could even be a very small thing. It could be, uh, I, I tried making an app and it brutally failed. That's found in something that's good enough, right? Great job, right? You, you tried something out of the ordinary. That's awesome. Uh, the, the second one is previous product managers, which is kind of a self-fulfilling prophecy. So I don't really like to harp on that one too much. Um, but you know, yes, people who have been product managers are more likely to become product managers. And uh, the third one is uh, people who come from uh, consulting or directly like out of MBA. Um, I lumped those two together because I think they're they're trained kind of similarly. And uh, MBA, I think a lot of people who, who leave uh, an MBA are going into consulting usually um, and consultants uh, do have similar skills to some product managers and the ability to quickly jump into a new industry, understand a problem, try to solve, uh, propose some solutions. I think the bifurcation occurs when actually execution of like, oh, now I need to actually solve it as opposed to just put in some slides and you know kind of huck it over the fence. Um, <laughs> you can see a little bit of my bias of consultants there. Uh, but that's those are the three categories of folks that I've seen that have successfully traversed that um, that interview process and received an offer. Um, and you know maybe the the quick like bonus on there would be what what about the you know so so if I put product manager on my resume I'm going to get an offer no there's there's some some things that really set people over uh, over the edge um, creativity I think is extremely important I'll just name three of these things so like creativity throughout the process really is important and I think that's uh, creative creativity in the questions that you ask, creativity in the solutions that you come up with in your thought process. Is it something that's unique? Is it not just the same cookie cutter stuff that everyone reads in the same book that I have on my shelf over there, the product manager interview, the PM interview, it's the yellow one, we all know it. Uh, there's there's also um, like a, a sense of genuine person, right? There's, there's emotional intelligence, emotional depth, admitting when you're wrong, right? All these things are, are, are really critical uh, to this interview process um, that it is noted and it, it does matter. And the final one, which we talked about before of just being a general good communicator, uh, a communicator that has like some confidence behind it, right? Not, not annoying confidence. We all know what that is. We don't want that. But someone who can communicate ideas verbally, um, can structure, can say something that sounds structured and the other person kind of like mentally whiteboard it and understand kind of the thought process of what's going on there. Super critical because um, because sometimes you, you don't have a whiteboard and you need to communicate your ideas um, verbally. So that is a long winded response to your question. But there that we was go. Great. <laughs> that was that was fun just to learn a bit more about what you've gone through, uh, what you've been involved in as well. I think my last question on that point is what sort of questions would they typically ask you in an interview? And maybe you can just go on like one to two. You mentioned a whole bunch of things, right? You mentioned there's certain pillars that, you know, there's strategy, there's technical. Um, what about, are, are there any key questions that you've, you've asked in the past or you can remember that would be pertinent for uh, an aspiring PM to really nail home? Yeah, with within Google, the product managers do talk to each other about 
what questions they ask. We will never talk about candidates. That is just, that, that's, not, that's not cool. Um, you will get fired for that. But we talk about the questions. So one should expect pretty creative questions. It will not be the 50th iteration of build a calculator for the blind, which is in every single book that exists out there. But there'll be, there'll be interesting ones that kind of create a, a, a different thought that you, you didn't really um, expect to be talking about, right? So I'll, I'll give a, a, some, some answer, uh, uh, I'll give some examples of ones that I went through when I was interviewed. Um, and then I'll say the one that I use. So if you get me, please just like, you know, if I interview you, just, you, I don't know, the, uh, uh, just let me know and I will not ask you this question. But <laughs> um, uh, the ones that I received were build me a product in healthcare. And, and when I heard that, I, I was like, well, did you read my resume? I have no background in healthcare. I, do, I, I barely know what Advil does, right? So like probably not the right person to ask that. But that's the point of it. It's to jump into something new and try to understand what's going on in that market. Try to understand how you can benefit people instead of getting all caught up in like trying to understand the, the molecules and, and be a, an expert in the field. Ultimately, I answered with, I just want to help seniors live a happier life when they're in a senior home because they might be a little lonely, right? And it's like, oh, wait, yeah, that, that makes sense. But the healthcare thing threw me off in the beginning. So that was one question I received. Um, another one was a, you're a, you're a vol, I think it was a volleyball company or a soccer ball company and your competitor all of a sudden started to make their, their uh, sports balls like yellow as opposed to yours were like green. Why did they do that? And and it was a fascinating question. I was like, I, well, I, I don't know, but obviously, you know, you're not going to say that. You're going to come up with some some questions that you would ask. And we went through this back and forth of trying to understand why would a competitor do something that seemed so so minimal, um, but just so out of the ordinary. Um, and and going through that uh, exercise was really really interesting. Those are two questions that I received. The question that I usually ask and is my my favorite because there's really no way to prepare for it. Uh, so you, you you can't read a book on it <laughs> is um, name three products that you used today. And then I, as the interviewer, will choose one of them. And you're going to be a competitor to this company and you're going to build a better version of it and, and go for it. How, how are we going to launch it? What are we going to build? And I love that question because you you can't prep for it. You can't think of what, what you're going to choose because I'm going to ultimately choose it out of that. And I get to see really how, how you think and, and how you, how you really like hone in on that and that space, understand like the, the problems that people are having in that space, how you can build something that is even better uh, than what exists today and really see how creative you are and how, how you can think on your feet. Um, what I love about the process in general, right? That's the question that I ask, but the process in general, it's not about where you came from. It's not about what you did before entering the room. It's not about your resume. None of that matters. It's about in the room, how you think, how you feel, how you process things, and then we leave. And that's it, right? And I think that's just a really magical moment of, of uh, just, letting everything go at the door. And it's just about how you talk about something. So that's- yeah. I love that. I love also the idea that you're doing this together with the candidate as well. You're not yeah. putting them and throwing them in the deep end. It's like, let's try to solve this together. Let's do this because we're a team and you're gonna be working with a lot of people as well. You're not gonna be just doing this by yourself. So all the more reason to figure out how do you communicate, work with me, how do we, hash this out on the whiteboard, whatever it may be. But I think it's, there's a lot of underlying uh, sort of capabilities you're assessing there and it'll come through from that very, very simple question. So Exactly. The one thing I'll add there too that um, I, I just thought about was the when we're going, when a product manager at Google is going through interviewer training to, pre to prepare to, to, to interview candidates, the number one goal is not to determine the outcome of if that candidate should get an offer or not. It's actually just to make sure the candidate had a great time. And that that's all that matters, right? Even if you come out as the interviewer and you're like, I actually don't know the answer, the recruiter will just, will have another interview. That's fine. As long as the candidate's happy, fulfilled, and, and, and feels like they had a great, 
a great moment for 45 minutes together with a, with a Google PM. That's great. Let's, uh, let's sort of maybe not shift gears a little bit, but maybe stay on the same thread of the skills of that PM. I know that as a PM, you have to be very, very dynamic in your approach. You can't just know one thing only. You have to know a bunch of things. The question is really about how well do you have to know those other things? I think as someone, as a PM who's worked, who's working in tech or who wants to work in tech, they, they need to understand that it is definitely a melting pot of different groups. You've got engineering, you've got legal, you've got branding, you've got design. How does one, how does a PM, what does PM sort of need to know? Do they need to know the ins and outs of those areas? You know, how much information should a PM know about design if they have no design background? Should they learn? Should they be, you know, should they ask questions from the design team? How much should they know about coding or UX, UI? You know, I think there's going to be a lot of overlap there. How does how do you get involved in all that and how much do you need to learn to become a really good PM? The best PMs that I really admire within Google are ones that have a, a, a common trait among all of them. And it is just a general curiosity on life, right? And a curiosity on, on anything that's presented to them, right? When they see a problem or, or a new topic, they want to learn more about it and figure out why that, why that happens or why that works that way. And, and with that curiosity, you have this natural uh, force pushing you to learning a lot of broad level things, right? You're, you're uh, what's this quote that's in one of the books? Like I'm a master of nothing, but um, you know, kind of dipping your toes in everything. Um, and and I think that's what a product manager should should aspire to be, right? And and product manager, but also a leader of a company, right? Everything from from the CEO of a company. Um, down to the, the individual product managers. Because when you have that holistic view of how different things connect, you can connect those, those dots and, and you can make the connection between the legal side, the UX side, the engineering side, the marketing side, the, the go-to-market, everything. You can connect these dots. And that's ultimately what a CEO does or a co-founder does as well. Um, in terms of specifically how much should you learn I think understanding, like I'll, I'll dive in, for example, to, to UX, right? I, I would understand basic terminology within UX, right? Like what what, is, what are some design techniques? What are some design principles that uh, designers learn when they're going through um, building the skills in their, in their trade? Communicating with those people, it'll be critical to understand and, and speak the same language. Understanding as well, like how, what tools they use and the basics of how to use them, right? Figma, Sketch, whatever, you know, tool your company uses, how do they build it? And, and how do they, you know, what, what are they looking for, right? Is it symmetry or is it, is it art? Like understanding how they communicate, understanding the tools they use, I think is a, a good start and, and just having a uh, sense of, of empathy when working with those, those folks um, in, in any realm is, is critical, right? Um, let, let me go into another topic too. Uh, let's say for, for example, policy and legal. I think this is always a tricky one. <laughs> uh, nope, not many product managers are lawyers. <laughs> That's a, an interesting path. Uh, my manager at Google actually is a, is a lawyer. So I'm going to, there's an, asterisk on that one. Um, but you don't need to understand law and, and policy, but I think that the, the level that you should understand is like, what, what could be something that uh, a company could be sued for on, on just a general sense seeing, you know, in the news, what are other companies sued for or what other like policy decisions are being made out there? Like currently, I think there's a, uh, um, there's a Microsoft's trying to buy Activision, right? Like trying to stay in the news of like, okay, why is the FCC blocking that? What is the re legal repercussions of that um, acquisition going through? Um, when we were talking before the example of uh, identifying uh, certain businesses as black owned or LGBTQ plus friendly, understanding the, the legal ramifications of doing something like that and the policy ramifications of doing something like that is critical. 
But again, you don't need to be a lawyer. So it really is kind of this depth approach of, of understanding the, the tools and communicating with the folks that are experts in their field and being able to cross the dots and, and, and cross the lines of bringing those people together when it makes sense, I would say is kind of the, the, the level of depth that you should aspire when being a product manager. Yeah, there's a lot of stuff there to unpack, and that's that's really interesting. And uh, and I agree, you know, you definitely have to have the breadth and and at least the insight into one of these things, each of these respective fields. You don't have to have the expertise to as the actual individual contributor um, or the domain expert, but at least being able to be able to overlap and identify certain nuances of those fields and be able to communicate that as well and then be able to join the dots. I think that's really one one variable, very valuable skill to have as a, as a PM. What does it look like for a PM for the future? Like, let's say you've got a junior PM going through the ranks, climbing the ladder, they become a product manager, senior PM. You know, what's next after that? What potential pathways exist for a PM, a product manager who's done really well for themselves, but now they're looking for the next thing. You know, what are t- some typical paths that one would follow um, if if they were sort of following that track? There, there is this uh, very funny, um, maybe funny isn't the right word, but this very common revolving door situation that occurs within product managers and founders. Uh, that is kind of the the, the most common um, uh, next step for a product manager in their career is, is going back into entrepreneurship. And I say back into it because as I talked about before, like a lot of product managers were founders of something that, you know, probably failed or was acquired, you know, that'd be really cool too, you know? And, and that kind of revolving door, I think is, is uh, the, the, the steps of a product manager's career. So uh, I'll, I'll give you, you know, one, one example is um, my, my manager at Google, he founded a, a, very successful company in New York. It went really well. They were acquired, and uh, you know, he started to have a have a family and wanted to slow down a little bit. So he came to Google uh, as a as a product manager, and uh, and started building products here. And maybe someday he'll go back to being a, a founder if he kind of has that uh, itch that he has to scratch. So I think that's kind of the the, the common trait um, of, of of product managers, definitely. What's the, and we're going to switch gears again here to sort of maybe yeah. a little bit on the, the, the advent of AI and more specifically generative AI. And have you seen, or maybe you yourself are using tidbits of whether it be ChatGPT or now Bard to really help you augment the PM process? What is this going to look like down the road where you can ask questions and you might get a really good response, but then figuring out, okay, what do I do with this answer? You know, are there specific methods or ways that you've seen product managers use things like generative AI to help their job, make it smoother, make it faster, make it more efficient? What's, what's, the, what's the value there, I, I would say? It's... There is a, an incredible amount of value from those tools. I, I, I will say that, and just begin with that. That there's there's so many different opportunities in in how we can use them in our day to day life, specifically within being a product manager. Um, I can give you a few examples. Like one is, um, I, I want to see if this policy document, um, if we, well, I need to be very cautious here. If this is not released yet, so uh, if this new data type would be put on Google Maps if it was considered a good or bad data type based on a, a policy that we wrote. Normally what we could do is I could submit this to, to go to some human operators and, and curators who would go through and manually look at a, maybe a sample of five or 10,000 of this data type and determine if it's good or bad. I can also just give the policy document over to BARD and in a Google sheet, just drag and drop and it'll, it'll spit that out within seconds. It's a complete change in terms of productivity for, for evaluating content, um, a complete change in terms of writing emails and simple things like that and gut checking yourself to seeing if this is a good email or not, um, for communicating, for determining, uh, actual like, you know, quality of, of, of products, uh, of substance, uh, for determining 
how you should pitch something to uh, a leader, um, how you should communicate with others in the company. It's the, the amount of, of ways that you can use a product like Bard or ChatGPT is, it, it, it's, a, it's a blank text box for a reason. It, there's unlimited uses. <laughs> Everything that you think that you had to do this maybe mundane or, or tedious or difficult to do, you put a lot of thought into it. There's probably a use case where you could use these tools to become significantly more efficient. Now there's, there's, there's a lot of caveats there, right? That's the optimistic side of things of, wow, I can be a one product manager that does the output of five. That's really great. But we need to really look at these models and also understand the, the bias that they have in them, right? If we lean too hard on them and say, oh, well, imagine you're Google Maps and should I launch this feature? And, and maybe it's a slightly controversial feature that you haven't really put in that in-depth thought and, um, and, and rigor behind, and it just says yes, and you go for it. That would be the wrong use of these tools, right? They have a lot of bias. They were pulled from the internet, which also has a lot of bias uh, towards, towards certain things. Um, there, there's a lot of, uh, you know, just imagine you're making decisions based off Reddit. Sometimes it's good, but sometimes in certain cases, it's just terrible. So keeping that lens on it and understanding the pros and cons of using BARD and ChatGPT to make decisions in order to generate content, I think it's just very critical. But the the use cases of, of what you can do every day with it, I've I've seen my productivity within within Google probably two X uh, because of using the tools for for just so many different tasks that I have to do throughout the day. So um, I'm I'm pretty pro uh, and positive on the future of the of of these tools, but we just need to make sure that we're we're doing the right thing and and being very critical on the societal impacts of of using them in terms of their bias, but then also the replacement of, of, of people. I mean, that's a whole other topic um, that also frightens me a little bit. Yeah, I, I agree. I think it's a tool at the end of the day and it's a double, it's a double-edged sword. So it's do what you will with it. But at the end of the day, you need to make your own judgments on the answers you receive, the responses you get from these types of models and exercise your own skill set, your own experience and, and then supplement that with uh, your, your best knowledge to, to really go forward and build a great product. And as you said, right, it's going to help accelerate. Uh, it's not going to replace product managers, I don't think, but it's going to help them and scale their efforts out and be able to make things ha easier and, and more efficient, which is also a time, a time saver at the end of the day. And then you can focus on other things, more important things to deal with as well. I'll add one quick thing on there. Um, there's a document within Google that's that's called View From Above, and I've talked about it uh, before with, with folks outside the company. And the, the purpose of the document is to um, put yourself in the shoes of an executive, uh, of, of someone at Google making these calls, uh, making these, these decisions just kind of on a whim. And I think that's what these tools, Bard and ChatGPT, kind of push us product managers to being less the mundane tasks that we have to do throughout the day, but more the decision makers um, and, and ultimately taking all the data in and making a decision as opposed to having to collect all of that data, which I think a lot of product managers fall into that trap right now of having to figure out how do I find this data? How do I get multiple sources? How do I you know, communicate with collecting all of these, these things together? Um, and maybe these tools can help us just surface all of the information, then we ultimately make the decision. Almost what the you know leads of of these uh, these massive companies do. So you you literally just answered my next question, which is what oh, is no. the future of product <laughs> management? So that's a great answer, and it, it's and I think that is correct. And you know, figuring out how do you take the menial work out of what needs to be done, and then be really there to make the most important decisions. And I think that's what the future of product management is going to be like. It's going to optimize a lot of things for that space so that companies and businesses who are having uh, developing products 
can really just focus on the product building side of things and, and really put their best foot forward to, to make a great product uh, for people to use. I guess the last thing I want to ask is just really about advice. And we've spoken about this previously in the conversation about interviewing, about presenting, putting your best foot forward. But what's the general advice that you can just offer to people who are thinking about being a PM, not necessarily those who are PMs and they just want to move and jump ship, but those who are sort of coming out of college or high school and they're seeing really cool products, but then maybe they, they're thinking to themselves, maybe I could make a better product. Maybe I could tweak this and tweak that. What's the advice that you can give to these guys and girls uh, to be the best that they can be, but also give them a North Star to walk towards? What should they be focusing on? What should they be learning? You mentioned creativity and, and curiosity is a very, very important. Anything else that you can add to that? Yeah, it's 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 tough when I say creativity and curiosity because th those are very soft skills, right? Uh, those, are, those are not easily measurable skills. But based on what we talked before, I think the nature of product managers is changing and it's, it's changing rapidly instead of focusing on these, these tasks that we we're talking about before of like uh, menial getting data, writing long emails, things like that. We're interesting enough, really leaning hard into what humans are great at, which is empathy, emotional depth, understanding other people, trying to think of what, what could go wrong and, and is that the right thing to do? getting into creativity in the arts, right? This is really what humans are really good at. And we're with ChatGPT and Bard, the ultimate outsourcing of the things that maybe we're not so good at. Data entry, menial tasks, writing long emails. I think that humanity was not made to do these things. We're terrible at it. <laughs> That's why we have spell check, right? And if we kind of see where product is heading and and if you put, if you agree with that notion that that, that is, that's where we're going. Um, trying to, to show that skill, I think would be really critical. The question is, how do you show that skill? That's very challenging because as we just said, it's, it's, it's a soft skill. It's everyone could say that they're very empathetic and, and, and understanding of, of many groups of people and, and, and know how to do things. What I want to layer on top of all of it is, is just, it's this thing that, I think we all see in, in great, ups, great startup founders and entrepreneurs and great product managers, but also great people in all of their fields, right? Like incredible doctors, incredible lawyers, incredible um, uh, folks in finance, iBankers, right? Is, is, I think it it's, distills down to like grit. Are, are you, are you going to figure it out or are you going to sit down and say, you know what, someone else should probably do this. I'm not the best at it. If you have that grit and you can show that grit, and I don't even know if that's the right way to describe it, but <laughs> the right word, but that you, you will go out and try to figure it out and you will stop at nothing until you, you give your best foot forward and attempt at, at doing this thing. I think that ultimately sets you up for success for product, but also just in life that you will not just sit back and, and say, hands up. I, I don't know how to do this and, and never question that you should figure out how to do this thing. Um, that's how great companies are born. That's how great doctors uh, are, are, are born as well. I don't know why I'm thinking like created. That's probably the wrong word there, but that, that's also how uh, great product managers um, go throughout their career. And how can you show that in a resume or an interview? What I suggest to people is, have this curse, <laughs> give yourself this curse, go about your day, go about your week and think of the things that could be better and look at everything from, from the trash can that's on the side of the road to the doorknob on your door to using a, an app a software or something on your computer and think like, like you mentioned, how could this be better? Like, is this, is this the best we have? Like, is there a better version of that? And then, just sketch it up or something, or, or just try to do the minimal, minimal thing of like, okay, th yeah, this could be a better version of that. That could be better and continue to let your mind 
and your grit show by trying to build it out and try to build something that is better than what existed before. It doesn't have to scale. It doesn't have to be for a thousand or 10,000 or millions of people. Just try to do something where you've improved uh, a product. And if you can build that into a company or, or build that into something that does scale, that's really cool. But I think that's the, that's the seed to uh, the, uh, an incredible product manager flourishing into, I don't know where this analogy goes, a big tree, right? <laughs> um, is, is, is looking at the world that way and not being afraid to, to say, you know what, I'm going to give it a shot. I'm going to try something. So that's what I would, I would conclude that. Well said. Uh, let's finish it off here. That was great. How do people get in contact with you if they want to say hello, reach out, you know, maybe put you for their own startup because you're such a great product <laughs> manager? How do you, how do they get in contact with you? Yeah. Um, there's a couple mediums. Uh, LinkedIn is probably the most common one. Um, I think, I think my email is probably floating out there somewhere. You can send me an email, um, or, uh, yeah, or reach out to you and then have, you know, you, you can reach out to me cause you, you have my phone number and email and everything. But, um, yeah, I'm, I'm always open to, to chat. So. Awesome. Thank you so much. Really appreciate you coming on Liam. And, uh, I'm sure there's going to be a lot of people, listening to this and hopefully will be inspired and also learn a lot as well for those who are not well acquainted with product management and they get to learn a, a thing or two. And I think that's the purpose of this podcast is to then walk away to sort of learn something new every day. So thank you for sharing your story, your insights, your knowledge uh, and everything in between. And uh, yeah, thank you for so much for coming on. Thank you. This, is, this has been incredible. So awesome. Thank you everyone for tuning into this episode. If you like this episode, be sure to check out more by subscribing to the podcast on YouTube, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and more. Thanks for listening, and I'll catch you next time.